Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. In the fall of 1991, the Andrea Gale left Gloucester, Massachusetts and headed for the fishing grounds of the North Atlantic. Two weeks later, an event took place that had never occurred in recorded history. Most people, when they say perfect storm, get the metaphor wrong. They describe a perfect storm as something that is a surprise event, totally unforeseeable, that comes out of nowhere. But if you actually read Sebastian Younger's book, The Perfect Storm, that's not what that Atlantic gale was all about. It was actually a very well-forecast storm, totally predicted, easily foreseeable. The warnings were simply ignored. This fall, I think we're shaping up for the perfect storm election. I think mail-in voting is, is going to rig the election. I really do. He's talking in July about November's rigged election. You guess what's going to happen. Today on Nerdcast, we have a cheery task in front of us. We're going to go through everything that's gone wrong with voting so far this year. And it's a long list. 2020 politics are anything but typical. There was the Iowa caucus debacle in February. It's a major coding issue with a mobile app. Uh, the long lines plaguing Super Tuesday in March. Under major scrutiny after Super Tuesday. And then there was the coronavirus affecting primaries in April. It was a mess. And in May. What happened? And in June, you get to Georgia, you have the long, long lines. Just the mess that was across this state on Tuesday on primary election day. And now we're roughly 100 days out from the next presidential election and still in the middle of a pandemic. And we have more questions than answers about how our system is going to handle all this stress. I'm Scott Bland, and I've got journalist Garrett M. Graff, who wrote this week's Politico magazine cover story, sounding the alarm on the perfect storm we're headed to in November. And we are not going to look as good as George Clooney did in the middle of his perfect storm. I'm sorry to tell you. What we have seen unfold throughout this year in primaries and caucuses are a lot of different, unique failures. Everything from the app that was supposed to tabulate the Iowa caucuses collapsing to the way that the pandemic has upended polling locations and forced people to switch to vote by mail, the social distancing requirements that have caused long lines, the constant drumbeat or ominous music in the background about the possibility of a foreign attack uh, or online information operations like what we saw in 2016. But 
What struck me thinking about how this year has unfolded so far is that what's going to likely unfold this November is actually all of these things failing at once. Um, that sort of all of these problems occurring not as one-offs, but all at the same time. And the way that they are going to reinforce one another, compound one another, uh, sets us up for a crisis of American democracy unlike anything that we have seen in our lifetimes. It's a it's a really interesting point. And, you know, it's especially interesting to go back and start with that disaster in the Iowa caucuses to, to start this all off, because I think, first of all, I hadn't thought about that in months <laughs> until uh, until I was reading your story. But then the, the context you're putting it in, it's not so much in your mind. And I, and I think this makes a lot of sense. It's not an isolated failure of, of technology. It's part of a systematic failure of stress testing of the institution of voting. <laughs> exactly. And that one of the things that w- we spend so much time worrying about single catastrophic failures of our uh, election, you know, the, sort of like the foreign hacking of our voting systems kind of thing. I think we are much more likely to see this fall is not any one thing going wrong. It's many, many small things going wrong in many, many different places around the country. Um, you know, one of the things that makes our voting system so resilient, actually, from, you know, a literal hack of the voting infrastructure is our elections are just so complex that we have 10,000 different precincts around the country. All 50 states individually are in charge of how elections are run in those states. So, you know, we don't have one voting system in the country. We have thousands of voting systems in the country. So we have gotten used to like something like the hanging chads problem in Florida, where like a single place ends up running into trouble with its voting technology or the specific system that it relies upon. This fall, though, we're going to see, as you said, a pressure test unlike anything that we have ever seen before that is not going to be, you know, one big thing. It's just going to be lots of little things. And, you know, uh, the pressure test, whatever you want to call it, one of the metaphors you use in in your piece is perfect storm. And you actually take a little time in the piece to kind of set the record straight on that particular metaphor, too, in a way that that makes particular sense with with this issue. Yeah, you know, I I think almost everyone who quotes the perfect storm cliche gets it wrong. Um, You know, they they say they label things perfect storms that were unforeseeable. And so I I say in the piece, what we are shaping up to see is a perfect storm election where you just have all of these different bits coming together. You know, you have the threat of foreign attacks. You have the possibility of information operations, you know, internet bots and trolls. You have the pandemic changing the way that people vote 
and, and not just the, the way that they vote, but where they vote and who can vote as so many people are going to find themselves dislocated this fall. I mean, think about just the simple fact that there are 20 million college students this fall who mostly will not be in the places that they would normally be on election day as colleges and universities shift to online learning for the fall. And on top of all of that, you have election officials who are struggling to adopt new technology and new processes to fit not just the pandemic, but many states were already in the process of implementing new voting systems for this year in response to the 2016 attack and the cybersecurity concerns around electronic machines to try to switch to paperless ballots or what are called ballot marking devices that are basically fancy computers that print out a hard copy voting receipt. So you have officials trying to learn this new technology, voters trying to learn this new technology. You have all of these dislocated voters. You have sort of tremendous funding stresses on the electoral system, but also the systems that support the election. Like the post office, right? The postal service is under unbelievable financial stress this year from the pandemic. Mail is already delayed across much of the country. It's being slowed down in its delivery times, which matters a great deal when you suddenly have millions of new absentee and vote-by-mail ballots heading out both to and from the election officials and from the voters. Because in many of, you know, in many states, uh, absentee ballots have to be not just postmarked by election day, but received by election day. And so you have scenarios where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people might be disenfranchised. Their ballots literally cast into the trash because the Postal Service is moving more slowly this year than it normally does, and the ballots just don't arrive in time. On top of all of that, you have this unique situation unfolding this fall where a lot of the traditional voting protections that we have relied on, like the Voting Rights Act, um, are no longer in force. This will be the first presidential election since the 1980 that the Republican National Committee has not been under a federal judicial uh, consent decree that limits their ability to challenge the credentials of individual voters, which they were before that consent decree doing to attempt to disenfranchise poor and minority people of color voters. And those shackles have now been lifted. The Federal Election Commission is actually currently operating without a quorum because of resignations. That means that that will not be available as an enforcement mechanism this fall. And on top of all of that, you have Donald Trump, um, someone who is uniquely poised to threaten uh, the legitimacy of an election that he doesn't believe that he can actually lose. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Garrett. And, you know, actually, you, you write in the piece, it's actually, you know, everything that's happened leading up to this election, the the how close Trump's victory in 2016 was, uh, the lingering memories of the 2000 election uh, in Florida, especially among Democrats, is all kind of shaping up 
given all these other factors at play, the possibility of a close election and, and issues with the the speedy counting and, and tabulating of votes and everything, it really could lead to a, a crisis in confidence in the results after the fact. Yeah, and, and this is where you sort of have to get a little bit philosophical about elections and their purpose in a democracy. In many ways, we think about an election as figuring out who won, but that's really not what matters in a democracy. What matters in a democracy is running a process that is legitimate and safe and secure enough that you can convince the loser that they have lost to the election. That, that's what gives the legitimacy of a democratic process is that the loser feels like they had a fair shot at winning and actually didn't win. So when you look back at our modern elections and in fact the history of presidential elections writ large, so much of our democracy is held together by the grace of the loser. It, it you know, it's Al Gore in 2000 saying, okay, I don't agree with the Bush v. Gore Supreme Court case, but I will uh, accept the Supreme Court decision as legitimate and declare that I have lost the election. In 2016, it was Hillary Clinton saying, man, it really sucks that I lost uh, the Electoral College, even though I won the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes, but I accept the legitimacy of Donald Trump's victory. And the thing that I think is unique and worrisome about this fall's election is you have the president in his re-election campaign already laying the groundwork for declaring that a close loss is not legitimate. And in some ways, I think when uh, you look back at 2016, he was saying many of these same things over the course of the fall of 2016. He literally said he wasn't actually sure that he would concede if he lost um, at, at one point. Um, and he, you know, through the fall of 2016, was talking about crooked Hillary and the rigged system and the rigged election, um, and that this is rhetoric that we are likely to see this fall again. Um, and that the confusion of everything that we're talking about here, whether it's voting technology, whether it's uh, voters not being where we expect them to be, whether it's the confusion over postmarks, whether it's confusion over processes, um, whether it's confusion over a foreign attack or a uh, information operation online. Um, he, whoever loses this election this fall is likely going to have plenty that they could point to across the country to say, I didn't lose fair and square. This was stolen from me. Right. And then the reaction from there becomes important. You know, and, and we, we, I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, in Georgia in, in 2018, we've seen Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor there, who lost very narrowly the Democratic nominee saying, you know, if the election had taken place under more fair circumstances, and she's been, uh, you know, for, for a very long time, she spent her whole career in Georgia talking about issues of voter disenfranchisement, voter suppression. Um, she's basically said she would be governor. And now, now, 
she's also, you know, she didn't occupy the governor's mansion, right? It's like very clear, I think painfully clear probably for her that she is not in fact the governor uh, at, at, at this point. Presumably in this situation, you know, well, I mean, we don't we don't know what would happen. It's it's not a pleasant thing to imagine. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it's particularly not a pleasant thing to imagine in a year that has already seen remarkable political unrest in our streets. Um, you know, you have had right wing militias out there trying to secure barber shops. Right wing militias storming the Michigan legislature to protest the Michigan stay at home order. Now we are weeks or, you know, almost two months into Black Lives Matter protests around the country. You know, we've seen federal agents, heavily militarized federal agents and federal officers on the streets of Portland, in the streets of DC. This is a very combustible year for all of this to potentially go wrong. So, Garrett, uh, in, in writing this piece, you are kind of playing the, the weather forecaster in the perfect storm, right? You're alerting all of these different possibilities that could combine into a really big problem. Uh, we've got, what is it, about three three and a half months left until the election? Yeah, it's about I mean, what 100 can, days. Yeah, what what can we do about all this? I mean, I've, I've been editing over the past few months a few stories at Politico by Zach Montalaro about how uh, basically, at this point, you know, there, there's there's no time left to implement new plans to expand absentee voting, for example, amid the pandemic. It's like, you know, if you haven't done it by now, there's there's just not enough time to uh, to train election workers to to deal with with the process and the stuff like that. So, what what can be done with with this information that that you're pulling all together to brace for uh, some of these possibilities in in the coming months in November and uh, maybe mitigate them? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question, Scott. And I think that there are sort of three things that voters and journalists need to be thinking about against this backdrop. One is, if you are a voter, sort of vote as early as you can, however that is. And then to the extent that you can in your own locality, um, double check that your vote arrive. The, the second thing is both as voters and as journalists, I think it's really important to understand this election isn't going to be like every other election that we are used to. You're not going to have John King on the CNN set with his magic wall on election night being able to report the results of all 50 states by, you know, 11 p.m. or midnight. That's such a great point. I mean, it's one like I I'm thinking about this already, right? Like, what do we do on, you know, even, even just the way that we present election results has this way built into it, you know, the, the percent precincts reporting that's at the bottom of every results thing. And, but it, it, it typically doesn't account for absentee ballots. And, and so we have to rethink the whole way we're presenting the, the, the act of votes being counted. Yep. Um, you know, and there are whole states where, you know, they're not even allowed to start counting absentee ballots until after the polls close. Um, right. You know, for states that are election day postmark states, that is, you just have to have your absentee ballot postmarked by election day. 
you know, there are going to be ballots arriving on Thursday, Friday, Saturday of election week. And that, you know, there are going to be states where we're not going to be sure who won that state for a week or two. And, and this is the important part is that's not a problem. Uh, that's not something that at 1 a.m. on election night, if we don't know the results of Wisconsin, we should, as new journalists or as voters, you know, immediately start saying something shady is going on here. The election is being stolen. You know, we're waiting for all the dead people to vote in Chicago kind of thing. Delayed results in this fall's election is actually the way that the system is set up to work. Election officials taking the time to do their jobs correctly and that, you know, it may be that we don't know for a week or two who wins the election. That's not a bad thing. That doesn't mean the election has been stolen. And anyone on Wednesday morning who is out there saying the election has been stolen, it does not deserve to be heard. I mean, that that is not, um, you know, that is not responsible rhetoric in this process just because we're seeing sort of normal delays in the election system. Um, and then just the third thing I was going to say, you know, for voters and journalists alike is don't buy into the conspiracy theories. You know, again, there are lots of things that go wrong in a normal election that are totally normal. On any given election at any time, there are going to be a random power outage. Um, there are going to be polling places that don't open on time. There are going to be election results that change as absentee ballots are counted um, and that that's all normal and that, you know, don't don't be the first one on your block or your news organization out there saying there's power out in these three schools in Georgia. The Kremlin must be attacking us. Understand that there's sort of complexity and random bad stuff that happens under the most normal of elections. It's to be expected when you have what you said before, 50,000 different jurisdictions running exactly. what, uh, this, what looks from a little bit of altitude like a singular event. Exactly. Everything that we can do, uh, you know, in the run up to the election to, in the on election night, on the day after the election to be responsible in our coverage, to be responsible in our individual social media posts and not be the first one to embrace conspiracy theories. That's the most that you can help your democracy on in this election. Well, I think if there's one thing we've learned in, in recent years about large groups of people, it's that uh, staying responsible and calm is uh, it comes easily to all of us. Uh, so <laughs> uh, so shouldn't shouldn't be shouldn't be a problem. Uh, great. Exactly. Everyone's got their their little toolkits for getting through this now and, and everything should be just dandy. Garrett, this was great. Uh, a little terrifying, but it was great. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Always a pleasure, Scott. All right, here are a few other things I've been watching this week. Number one, speaking of the pandemic and the disruptions of the year filtering into politics, 
President Donald Trump announced Thursday at the White House that he's essentially canceling the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville, Florida, or at least canceling the event as it had been planned. With coronavirus cases on the rise in a number of states, including Florida, Trump said it's not the right time for a crowded event. Now, you may recall, the convention was only being planned in Jacksonville because Trump had already moved it from its initial location in Charlotte, North Carolina, because he was frustrated by the likelihood of having to deal with local restrictions due to coronavirus there. But since then, we've seen cases go up in a huge way all over Florida. And now we'll see what the Republican Party plans to do in place of the renomination bash they'd been preparing for Trump for a while now. Number two, the second story I've been watching, also very much related to our conversation today. Last Friday, the Associated Press finally called Jamal Bowman the victor in his primary challenge against Congressman Elliot Engel. It was a fascinating Democratic primary uh, for a congressional seat. It says a lot about what's going on inside the Democratic Party right now. But the thing I wanted to point out here is that while the AP call came last week, the primary was on June 23rd. And a month later than that, and, and a week after Bowman's victory getting called, we still have two other uncalled House Democratic primaries in the New York City area. New York State was processing lots and lots of absentee ballots for the first time in this primary, and hopefully they learned some lessons that will help them do it a little faster in November. But not everywhere is getting a test run like this. So that's worrisome, and it's something to think about heading toward the general election. And number three, this is a developing story that may well change by the time the podcast comes out, but the White House and Senate Republicans are really struggling to uh, figure out what they want to put in a new coronavirus relief package totaling $1 trillion. Congressional Democrats have made a $3 trillion plan their starting point for negotiations. And here's the underlying situation, why we're talking about new legislation. New Labor Department data this week showed applications for unemployment benefits rising for the first time in 15 weeks as local economies take a hit from emerging coronavirus hotspots throughout the country. And several states, including California, Texas, and Florida, are closing down businesses again after reopening them earlier. Oh, and by the way, the new package in Congress, it's needed to extend the unemployment benefits that millions of people have been using. The extra $600 a week on top of existing unemployment benefits that came in the earlier package from the spring. Those are set to run out soon. And even if Congress figures out what they want to pass and they pass something soon, it's already too late to prevent a lapse in getting the aid out to people in many states because of the way those state unemployment systems work. So real bad situation. Hopefully they'll figure out something soon. But uh, at the very least, some sort of lapse in unemployment aid is coming from the federal government. All right, that's our show. Our producer this week is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Amond. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. And special thanks to Adrienne Hurst for her help producing recently. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And while you're there, check out some of our other podcasts like Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much for listening. 